Well, this morning we're going to get back into Ephesians. We've been in Ephesians for a couple weeks. Last week we took a, just a short little break. We had a guest speaker, Kelvin Walker, with us. But today we're going to get back into Ephesians. But even still, this sermon is going to be just a little bit different uh, than you're used to because normally we like to take a particular passage and kind of uh, chop that up a little bit. Today we're going to be looking at a theme that goes all through the book of Ephesians. And that theme is going to be heaven. Okay, but before we get into that, I want to show you a quick little video in a moment. Let me explain this video and introduce it. So most of you are probably familiar with the fact that some people are colorblind. Okay, a person that is colorblind just has a harder time distinguishing certain colors from one another. So a person who is not colorblind can see between 1 million and 7 million different color uh, hues and shades of colors, okay? So for instance, a person who's not colorblind would see our carpet, which is brown, and our chairs, which are brown, but they would say, well, they're the different browns, right? A person who is colorblind uh, struggles to distinguish similar colors. So they might look at the chairs and look at the floor and not be able to tell that those are different shades of brown. Does that make sense? It has to do with the, the cones in their eyes and they just don't see things, uh, they don't distinguish in uh, colors as well as a person who is not colorblind. So, there's been this uh, amazing development in science where uh, a company called Enchroma has developed these glasses that a person who is colorblind can wear. And those glasses filter light in such a way that it allows a colorblind person who's wearing them to make distinctions between colors and they can see the world just like a person who is not colorblind. And so one of the things I like to do, because I have so much free time, every now and then, if it comes up, if it just pops up on my screen, there are these videos of people putting on the glasses for the first time. A person who's colorblind putting on these Enchroma glasses and they see the vibrancy and the colors of the world, the way that those of us that are not colorblind see them. And it's always an emotional uh, experience because it's the first time in their life that they're seeing co color the way that, that I see it and the way that other people see it. And similar videos, if you've ever seen those ones where like little kids get the cochlear implants, people click their ears on, it's the first time they hear like their mom's voice or something like that. I, you know, I, you guys all know this, I'm a big softy, you know, very emotional, and so I get worked up over those videos. I love them. So what we're going to show you is one minute and 42 seconds of a video of people putting on these glasses for the first time. Every single one of them has an emotional response. Many of them cry. But what you're going to see is people seeing the world as it is for the first time. So what's happening with them is that for the first time in their life, they're seeing the world the way that it really is. And there's a, they're, you know, obviously they're colorblind, so there's a blindness that's preventing them from seeing reality. But because of these glasses, they're able to see it. These videos remind me of when people begin to see the world the way it really is through Jesus. When their worldview it totally shifts. When they start to understand reality as it is, the way Jesus created it, the way Jesus intended it, they start to see it and all of a sudden things make sense. And people say, as the second kid in the video says, is this the way things really are? Is this the way the world really looks? I mean, through Jesus and through what he's taught us in scripture, we actually begin to see the world the way it really is. 
And I think that many of us, while we're probably not colorblind, many of us are heaven blind. Or we are blind to spiritual realities. We are blind to the way that prayer impacts reality. We're blind to the way that uh, angels and demons impact re reality. We're blind to the way that there is a spiritual world that touches and interfaces and connects with the physical world and how those two things touch. We just don't even see it. We don't realize that that's happening. We don't realize that the stuff we're going through at work has a spiritual cause. We don't realize the stuff we're going through at home has a spiritual root to it. We're blind to that. And what I want to do today is try to make sure that we can see the world the way that it really is, to understand, like to get our heaven blindness corrected, because Jesus actually does address that. It's something that he provides for us. It's something that he fixes. Uh, I say heaven blindness. Uh, when I say that, I'm kind of accommodating a limited view of heaven that most of us operate with. So in the Bible... It does not use heaven in the singular most of the time, like I am going to heaven or Jesus went to heaven. It actually uses the word heavens, plural. It usually refers to the heavens, meaning that there are more than one heavens, okay? Now, I'm going to explain that in a moment before you go thinking that there's a this kind of heaven and that kind of heaven, okay? I'm going to explain that in a moment. But there are plenty of words in the English language that are they're nouns that are always plural. For instance, scissors. Scissors is always plural, right? No one ever says, hand me the scissor, right? I could see Abby saying that. Maybe that's how they say it. Hand me the aluminum scissor or something like that. No one ever says, I'm putting on my glass. It's always glasses, right? No one ever does a shenanigan. It's always shenanigans, plural. Because the kind of person that does a shenanigan definitely does multiple shenanigans, there are certain words in English that are they're nouns, but they're always plural. Heavens is kind of like that in the Bible. It's almost always heavens, plural, okay? Uh, so we want to understand it that way, that there are heavens. That when God created the heaven and the earth, or the heavens and the earth, they were together in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Heaven was on earth, but then through Adam and Eve's fall, they were removed from the garden so some sort of break took place where heaven and earth were not synonymous anymore but we know that at the end of the book of revelation heaven and earth will be united again so right now we're in this kind of like middle ground stage where hey redemption has not been uh, uh totally appropriated yet we're still waiting for uh jesus to return and for heaven to come to earth but we still have access to heaven this is why Jesus, in John the Baptist before him, but Jesus went around preaching this message, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is near. This is why Jesus taught his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is why Jesus in Matthew 16 taught his disciples to only do ministry in the way that it had already been done in heaven and binding and loosing as it has been done in heaven. I mean, Jesus came from heaven to earth to redeem the earth so that heaven could come back to earth. Jesus's, one of Jesus' main agenda items is to get heaven and earth to come back together. But for some reason, Christians push heaven off into this 
far away future place or far away future time. Like, well, you know, I don't really get caught up in all this heavenly stuff because I'll, I'll figure that out when I'm dead. And I'm like, but if Jesus' main message was the kingdom of heaven is near, why are we pushing it off far? It's like we're doing the opposite of what Jesus intended when he came and ministered. So, listen, I understand we're going to die. Those of us that know Jesus are going to go to heaven, the heavens. And that's when we'll understand it way better than we do now. But please don't put off thinking about and learning about and understanding heaven now. Because I'm telling you, the heavens impact the earth today. It is near, it is at hand, it's what Jesus taught us to pray, and it's how Jesus taught us to do ministry. Does that make sense? Okay. Does that make sense is like my way of saying, can I get an amen? amen. Okay, great. Thank you, Neil. All right. So, the problem is we're all heaven blind. We don't see this. We don't understand it until Jesus puts his, you know, Jesus glasses on us, and we're like, whoa, now I see angels. Now I see demons. Now I see reality. Now I see Jesus as he is, not just as an as a itinerant Jewish preacher, but actually on a throne, the Lamb. Like John the Baptist is a good example of someone who is not heaven blind. The prophets and the apostles of the Bible were not heaven blind. In fact, most of what we know about heaven from scripture came through either a prophet or an apostle. The first, the, the, the number one capital A apostle, consummate apostle was Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 3 verse 1 it says that Jesus himself was an apostle. I don't know if you ever thought about that when you were... Uh, you know, memorizing of the list of the apostles, but Jesus himself is an apostle. The word apostle means sent one, someone who is sent. Where was Jesus sent from? Heaven to earth. Uh, you know, the apostle Paul traveled around starting little churches in little cities and towns. Jesus started the church, the whole thing. Everyone that's ever come after Jesus and was an apostle, Jesus was the initial consummate apostle. He descended from heaven. He preached the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He taught how to pray for heaven, and he told them to do ministry as it's done in heaven. Uh, so Jesus was an apostle and a prophet who made heaven known to us, and that's one of the things that distinguishes an apostle, apostles and prophets from evangelists, pastors, and, and teachers, is that apostles and prophets are primarily heaven-focused, and they're trying to get heaven down to earth. Pastors are usually flock-focused, congregation-focused. Evangelists are focused on the lost. Teachers are focused on the word. But apostles and prophets are focused on heaven and getting that here. All of those are necessary, by the way, and neither one is better or more essential than the other, but they are distinct. And the agenda of heaven is the agenda of apostles and prophets. So, we have this other apostle, Paul. You guys ever heard of Paul? Okay, the apostle Paul. In it, as, as well as with Jesus... Paul taught us much about heaven. And what we're going to read in Ephesians today are three things that Paul taught us about the heavens or the heavenly places. But Paul did not teach this because he thought about it really hard and came up and did a word study on some Greek words or anything like this. 
Do you know where Paul got his sources on what heaven is like? Well, I'll show you. Paul tells this story. This is in 2 Corinthians 12. This is the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know, uh, I know how such a man, whether in the body or, or apart from the body, I don't know, God knows, but I know how such a man was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. Paul says that he knows a man who was caught up to the third heaven. Who is this man that Paul knows? It's Paul, actually. He's, this is what I call a humble brag. You know, like, like if I said, oh yeah, I know a guy that was a, uh, a really good football player in high school. You know, like, that's really me, guys. Uh, like, Paul is talking about himself. Everyone agrees, uh, every commentator, every scholar agrees that Paul's talking about himself. And Paul is saying that whether it was physically or an out-of-body experience, he doesn't know. He says it twice. I don't know. But he was caught up to the third heaven. What do you mean third heaven, Paul? I've heard of seventh heaven, that great TV show that Shay owns every episode of. <laughs> that and Gilmore Girls. Uh, I, third heaven, what do you mean third heaven? If, if there's a third heaven, does that imply that there's a second heaven and the first heaven, and is that why we say the heavens? Is that why we talk about that? Now, I'm not going to go too far down this path today about first heaven, second heaven, third heaven, because it seems like there's not a ton of consensus on this. But here's what we do know. Paul calls the third heaven in verse 4, paradise. Okay? So we can learn a little bit about the third heaven. The third heaven is what you and I usually think of when we think of heaven, okay? It's God on the throne, no sin, no sickness, no devil, no demons, all that good stuff. When we think of heaven, that's what we think of, right? Okay, that's paradise. And not only Paul, but also John and Jesus himself referred to paradise. Uh, John, when he's writing the letters to the seven churches, which he was dictating from Jesus, in Revelation chapter 2, John writes this, To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And Jesus, when he was on the cross, when he was about to die, leaned over to the thief on his side, the thief that recognized who he was, and he said, Today you'll be with me in paradise. So he's talking about this. Today you're going to be with me in the, the word in Greek actually means the abode of the righteous dead. And it's the same word used to refer to a garden. Does that sound familiar? Genesis 1 and 2. Or a park. Which I love this just as someone that lives in a city. Heaven is a park in a city. I and mean, that's what it's going to be. A city is going to come down out of the sky. It's you know, New Jerusalem. Heaven, there's going to be a park there. You're not going to let your dog poop there. All right? Um, if you do, you get kicked out. 
The third heaven is what Paul calls paradise. That's what we think of when we think of heaven. So what are the other, what is the first heaven? What is the second heaven? Like I said, I'm not going to go too deep into this and I'm not going to chop it up precisely, but I'll say this, the earth and the spiritual realm are the first and second heaven. Okay. I actually think the earth is what we refer to as the first heaven. And then the the middle ground where all the spiritual battle is taking place is the second heaven. And then the third heaven is paradise. That's how I understand this. If you understand it differently, that's fine. You're probably right. But that's how I understand this, okay? So, Paul, when he talks about heaven in Ephesians, when he talks about what he calls the heavenly places or the heavenlies, he's not writing a theory. He's telling us what he saw. Because he's been there. This is first-hand account. He knows what he's talking about. This is one of the things that distinguishes apostolic Paul from, you know, pastors and teachers and evangelists. Now, uh, Paul tells us in Ephesians three specific realities about the heavens. And that's what we're going to look at today. Three specific realities about the heavens. The first it starts in Ephesians 6.12, and this is the reality. There is a battle going on. In the heavens... There is a battle going on, okay? Which means that we're not talking about paradise. We're talking about, I don't know, some other heaven, because there's heavens plural. So we're talking about some other spiritual realm, some other spiritual place where there's a battle. Paul writes, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. I love that Paul starts off by saying our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We often think that our enemy is our neighbor and that our neighbor is our enemy. Jesus does not create that type of category for us. Jesus only really gives us two categories to see the world through. Other believers are brothers and sisters. People that aren't believers are called neighbors. There is no enemy category as it relates to other people. We do have enemies, but they're not flesh and blood. Okay, and I've said this many, many times in the past. If it has flesh and it has blood, it's not your enemy. Okay, your neighbor's not your enemy. Your brother's not your enemy. Your sister's not your enemy. Your spouse is not your enemy. If it's got flesh and blood on it, it's not your enemy. Do you understand? We do have an enemy that is spiritual. What we want to get so that we're not heaven blind anymore is we want to understand how the spiritual reality impacts the physical reality. Have any of you ever slept wrong on your neck and woken up with a sore neck? Okay. Or maybe you've had a pinched nerve or a slipped disc. Linda, you've had it all, huh? All right. She's the bionic woman. Maybe you've had something in your neck or your back and you sleep wrong and your neck hurts, but like, man, my elbow hurts too and my wrist hurts and my knee hurts. And, and you think, what's going on? Well, this thing here is impacting this and this and this, probably this. I slept wrong on my neck. I woke up overweight. 
Understanding cause and effect is essential for us if we're going to understand how the heavens function. Okay? So your, your neighbor, your flesh and blood, neighbor and family and people across the street, they're not your enemy. Satan's your enemy. They're your neighbor or your brother and sister in Christ. But, um, do you need me to back up, Gene? All right. So there is a battle. And furthermore, we find this out. I'll come back to this in a moment. It says, as you were, uh, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly whacked, uh, walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So the prince of the power of the air is Satan. I mean, he has some authority on the earth, only what he's been given by us, by the way. Because Jesus has all authority. So Jesus has all the authority in the universe. He gave us, human beings, authority over the earth. It's like if Jesus had every car key to every car in the galaxy, he gave us the key to earth, and then Satan tricked us, and we gave him the key. That's what happened when Adam and Eve ate that, that piece of fruit. They gave him the keys to earth. Now, Jesus, when he defeated Satan through his death and resurrection, took the keys back. He usually actually uses that terminology. And he's like, slaps them back in the hands of the church. The keys of the kingdom. But you know what we do sometimes? We still kind of give them back to Satan. You know, when we, when we live in sin and compromise and dishonesty, we're like, I want to need these keys back, Satan, but you can take it for the weekend. You can borrow this. So Satan only has the authority we give him. Uh, because Jesus has disarmed Satan, we keep arming him. When we stop arming him, we'll find he has less authority. But for now, he's known as the prince of the power of the air. Now, as I continue uh, with this battle here, if our battle's not against flesh and blood, who is it against? It's against rulers, powers, world forces of darkness, and spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, which is the heavens. Every time that the New Testament uses a long list like this of rulers and powers and authorities and forces, it's talking about, essentially it's talking about demons. Okay? So that's our enemy. That there is something going on that's not flesh and blood, the first heaven. It's not paradise, the third heaven. But it's this middle ground where there's this battle, this spiritual battle that's waging against forces and dominions and authorities and powers, which is another way to talk about demons. Spiritual warfare is real. And you are in it. Whether you acknowledge that or not, whether you like it or not, you're in it. Uh, when I was in high school, I, I played sports a lot, and I would play football. And, you know, high school sports, kind of like anyone gets to play, you know, doesn't matter whether you're good or not, you, everyone gets a chance. So we would have some players on our team that like they would come out on the field for a play and it's like just they would look in the stands and all over the place and like they weren't really paying attention. People were running past them. I'm like, yo, you're in the game. Whether you know it or not, 
You're in the game. And that's how spiritual warfare is. You're in it. I don't know if you know it. I don't know if you care. I don't know if you're paying attention or participating, but you're in it. If you don't want to get whooped, you better wake up. Because it's real. I mean, it's impacting your family. It's impacting your community. It's impacting you. And you actually have victory. I mean, Jesus provides victory for us. So it's not worth sleeping through. Uh, You're in it. This battle, this struggle uh, that I'm referring to, creates a lot of interference or static in our lives that make it really hard for us to hear the voice of God. And we end up hearing multiple voices. Uh, When I drive out of Philly, I always, I listen to the radio in my car a lot. I listen to 94 WIP because I need to hear them talk about sports all day because I might miss something. So when I'm driving out of Philly, like if I'm heading toward Lancaster, when I get almost to Lancaster, I start losing reception and I start picking up Lancaster radio stations that are talking about like shoe fly pie and, you know, like buggy repair shops and stuff like that. When I get just short of Lancaster, I hear both at the same time. I got, you know, eagles, 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 horse and buggy, horse and buggy, horse and buggy. Actually, they probably don't even have radio stations. But like shoe fly pie, smorgasbord advertisements, that kind of stuff, right? And I can't make either one of them out because I'm hearing both of them. That's what's happening in this struggle. You hear the voice of God saying, I love you. I've saved you. I'm inviting you into depth. But in the midst of that, Satan is screaming over top of that lies and accusations. Not only is Satan screaming at you, so is the voice of your mom and your dad and maybe your spouse and maybe culture. And you're hearing like 10 screaming voices And it's confusing because in this battle, it's chaotic. There is static. There's interference. There's chatter in your ear. And it can be disorienting and it can be confusing and you don't really know what's going on. And it's a battle. But there is good news because not only does Paul tell us that there is a battle, Paul tells us about Jesus and that Jesus is seated with God. So I want you to keep this struggle in mind. And this is what Paul says. He says, God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavens or the heavenly places. Where is this taking place? Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named. So there is a battle. I just want you to know Jesus is seated far above above that so he's not dealing with the the chatter and the static and the screaming because he's above it right in paradise third heaven not only in this age but also in the one to come and he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. And I didn't mention this in the nine o'clock sermon, but I want to point this out here. Okay, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. We're going to start thinking about heaven differently when we understand biblical language. We talk about the end of the world. 
and like the world's going to blow up or explode or flood or something's going to happen, the end of the world. The Bible never uses that terminology. Now, it talks about going to the ends of the earth, like geographically, but it never talks about chronological end of the world. It talks about the end of the age. The world is going to continue. The age is going to change. Read through the book of Matthew. Jesus, every time he talks about his return, he talks about the end of the age, the end of the age, the end of the age. It's in Matthew 24 and a couple other places. The end of the age. Listen, a period of time is going to conclude and a new period of time is going to open when Jesus returns, but the world is going to continue. I mean, it'll be renewed. The world is not going to end. Heaven is going to come to the world. So we might as well begin to understand that because that's actually our job is to bring it and stop pushing it off like, well, that's, that happens at the end of the world. I, th- I feel like Jesus pulls his white shiny hair out and it's like, guys, there's no end of the world. Stop pushing heaven off. I'm cramming it down. Receive it. Pull with me. Does that make sense? All right. So uh, Jesus is far above this battle, this struggle. We often forget that Jesus was not only crucified and resurrected, but 40 days later he was ascended. I mean, where did Jesus go after he was resurrected? He spent 40 days on the earth and then he rode a cloud up to heaven. He's ascended. I mean, Ephesians 4, when we get there, is going to talk about the ascended Jesus gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to the church for the purpose of equipping them and leading them into maturity and fullness. Who is the Jesus that gives the spiritual gifts? The ascended Christ. He's the one that gives the gifts to the church. So, we, you know, Jesus is not a cute little baby in a manger anymore. He's not bleeding on a cross today. Today, and for the rest of eternity, he is sitting on a throne right next to God the Father, praying for us. Ascended. That's, Jesus has been ascended far longer than he was uh, on earth for 33 years. Okay? Jesus was a baby for 12 months, just like every other baby. Then he was a toddler, then he was a teenager. But he's been ascended for 2,000 years and will be ascended. You follow this? So if you want to know what Jesus is doing today, sit next to God. Far above everything. Jesus is not caught up in the chatter and the chaos and the destruction. He's seated far above and he's praying for us. He actually has the high ground. In any battle, you want to have the high ground, right? Jesus has the high ground. He actually, by being seated above, far above, he has perspective. He can see everything that's coming. You know, like if you, if you go up to the observation deck in uh, Liberty, Liberty 1 or Liberty 2 has an a observation deck. City Hall has an observation deck. You get up nice and high, man, you have such perspective. You can see where the traffic is. If there's a fire, you can see that. I mean, you, could, you have such perspective on what's going on. You can see the weather coming. The higher you get, the better perspective you have. Jesus, there's no, nowhere higher to go. He has perfect perspective. And he is the high ground in the battle. Now, this gets better. Not only is there a battle, 
Not only is Jesus seated with God above the battle, far above the battle, in Ephesians 2, 6, it says that we are seated with Jesus, which means that we are also far above the battle. In Ephesians 2, 6, I love this verse. This has been like a life verse to me for the last few years. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So God, while we were dead, okay, we weren't good, we weren't like doing our best, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. This is three things God did for us. The first is that he made us alive together with Christ. Everybody say, with Christ. He made us alive together with Christ. Then he raised us up with Christ. Everybody say, with Christ. So we've been raised up with Christ. And then he said, he seated us with Christ. Everybody say, with Christ. I don't know if you figured this out yet, but the Christian life is all about being with Christ. Baptism in Romans 6 is you dying with Christ and being resurrected with Christ. It's all life with Jesus. And this is, these are three things that God took the initiative to do on our behalf. He makes us alive, he raises us up, and he seats us with Jesus in the heavens or the heavenly places. So that means that we also have the ability to live above the chaos, the chatter, the static, and the interference that we don't have to be subject to the powers and the principalities, but we can actually appropriate or access heaven now. This is not, being seated with Christ in heavenly places is not some future thing that's going to happen when we die and go to heaven. It's present tense. You are currently seated with Christ in heavenly places. Now, I know your body is in Philadelphia right now. I get that. But your spirit has can get everything that's in heaven, has access to all of that. We're going to talk a little bit about how to do that practically. Uh, but before we do that, this is a quote from a, a guy named Warren Wearsby. Because we are united to Christ, we've been exalted with him, and we are sharing his throne in the heavenlies. This is incredible to me. Some like little tiny screwed up sinful person we get to sit essentially what i how i pictured is on jesus's lap on his throne our physical position may be on earth but our spiritual position is in heavenly places in christ jesus and that is now what this restores to us is our vision we no longer have to be heaven blind we no longer have to be ignorant of spiritual realities because jesus has given us a clear line to heaven in him, that we can have the perspective that Jesus has, that we can have the vision that Jesus has, that we can have the peace that Jesus has. We don't have to be caught up in the storm all the time. I often think of, if you've ever flown on a rainy day, uh, I had a four-year stretch where I had to fly to Atlanta every February, and it was always rainy. And so we would take off, and it'd be cold and rainy and wet, and then we'd go through the clouds, and you can't see anything when you're going through the clouds, but eventually you just pop right through, and it's like sunny. And it's like, it, it's rainy below, but up here it's nice. And that's kind of like an illustration of being seated with Christ in heavenly places. Like, below us there's a battle. I want you to understand that the battle is below us. 
that Jesus has authority and then he delegates that authority to us. That we have the ability to have clarity in the midst of the battle if we'll just make sure to recognize we're seated with Jesus in heavenly places and that, man, it's always sunny up there. Does that make sense? Uh, now, this is easier said than done. You can't, I, I don't know, the average person, the average Christian, when they're going through something difficult, I don't know that they can just be like, well, I'm seated with Christ in heavenly places. Suck it up. That's not the way it works. It usually takes a little more intentionality. So here, here's what's helpful. Prayer. And actually beginning to pray what Jesus taught us to pray. Praying scripture because scripture uh, shows us God's will for our lives. And then in addition to that, you know what's really helpful? Worship. When you Worship just has this power to like focus you. But sometimes it takes a few minutes. Like, you know, 30 seconds in the car is better than nothing, but sometimes that's still not all that you need. You need a little more time. I've noticed a pattern. I've been a pastor for 15 years now. This is not the way it should be, but it's the way it is. Christians really struggle to enter into worship on verse 1 of Song 1. When we gather on Sunday mornings, it's, I hate to say it, but this is just reality. I don't want it to be this way. It's just what it is. It takes until about song three before people are starting to focus on Jesus. Because by song one, first of all, we're walking in. Ten minutes late. We're walking in. We're already in verse one of song one. And our kids are running around, so we've got to gather them. And, oh, I've got to get a cup of coffee. So now we're into song two. Finally, we're taking our jacket off, putting our phone on silent. Still upset about that thing that we argued about in the car on the way to church, which is a Sunday morning tradition. That's why my wife and I drive to church separately. All of that stuff is happening while we're trying to engage in worship. It's actually one of the reasons we try to have a call to worship, is to get us focused faster. Because the truth is, Jesus is worthy, song one of verse one. You know what I mean? He's immediately worthy. We're just so fallen. It, we have to warm up. So you might have to actually set aside an extended period of time for worship. Five minutes may not be sufficient. You might need 20. You might need 30. Why does worship help us connect with the fact that we're seated with Christ in heavenly places? Why does worship help us have a heavenly mindset? Because that's what they're doing there. What are they doing in heaven right now? They're not wringing their hands in anxiety. They're not dealing with unforgiveness and bitterness. They're worshiping. If we do what they're doing, we'll connect. We'll bring heaven to earth. Does that make sense? So that's what we're going to do this morning, and John Eric's going to lead us in just a brief song, and I just want to jumpstart this process of using worship as a means of realizing or appropriating our position in Jesus as seated with Christ in heavenly places. So would you mind standing with us? I want to pray for us, and then John Eric's going to lead us in this song. Jesus... 
you yourself have taught us that we are in the midst of a spiritual battle. We don't deny that. Uh, but we also acknowledge, Jesus, that you have all authority and that you have given us authority to be victorious in the midst of spiritual battle. Jesus, you said that we are seated with you in heavenly places and we want to live that. We want to have clear thinking. Uh, before we go into a chaotic circumstance, Jesus, help us to remember that we're seated with you in heavenly places. Before we go into a difficult day at work, Jesus, help us to remember that we're seated with you in heavenly places. Before we have to have a hard conversation with someone, Lord, help us to remember that we're seated with you in heavenly places, Lord. Call us into times of worship where we can fix our eyes on you and not on ourselves and not on the battle around us, but our eyes on you, Jesus. We want to enter into what's going on in heaven right now and bring it to earth. I pray that in your name, Jesus. Amen.